Warning, what you are about to hear is born of long years of deep friendship, shared experience, brutal honesty, and the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ. Please, do not walk up to the first black or white person you know and start this sort of banter. It will not end well. Welcome to Racial Heresy, the show where two Episcopal priests, one black, one white, attempt to violate the established racial doctrines of American culture and provoke you to do the same. Allow me to introduce Father Jabril Ballantine, a baby hair-loving, Bible-thumping, divine, nine-stepping, priest, husband, father, friend, and all-around good Negro. And allow me to introduce Father Case Ramey, an NPR-streaming, American flag-saluting, social justice-preaching, African-American heritage museum-touring, priest, husband, father, friend, and all-around high-quality cracker. How you doing, my brother? What's up today? Hey, I told, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thank you, Thor. I, I like I like getting props for you know my liberal progressive uh, kudos there for for visiting the museum. Finally, was able to get a ticket. Yeah, yeah, I was about to jump in and save you and me brag on you because yeah, you're right. You lose all your cool points when you, the white man, start bragging and taking selfies about going to the Black History yeah, Museum. Right. <laughs> But he went with his kids, we might add. You get points for going. Uh, it was good. It was powerful, even just a little bit that we saw. We'll have to go back. We will have to go back. Uh, Man, that's, cause, a, uh, that's, cause a, that's a beautiful ooh, so thing. Much there. I'm, 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 I'm yeah, glad to yeah. know that you are, you are going there before they defund the place. It is beautiful. That's, that's true. <laughs> that's true. We got to hurry. Uh, but, you know, we're not done with introductions because I am joined with, a, with another one of my brothers from another mother. Uh, you know, ain't, ain't, ain't seen this brother too much, but when we do get together and see each other, it's always like we never left. Uh, Michael Hun is the presiding bishop's canon, um, and he's been serving with Bishop Curry since North Carolina. Uh, good day, brother. How you doing? It's a pleasure to be with you, my brother. How are you? Oh man, I'm. It's another wonderful day in Zamunda, brother. You know, and so doing, doing all right. Uh, like I said, just recovering from. I was down and out with the flu for a few days, so um, it's good to be back in Adam and 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 doing the things we love to do. And a pleasure to have you on 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 the line with us. So t- tell me, man. Um, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you, Case. Thank you. You know, I always like introducing white folks to each other. It's a beautiful thing. So, <laughs> you know, um, I I want to, before we get started, you know, I just, if I remember, you're not from North Carolina. How did you, how did you get to be with, to North Carolina, get to be with Bishop Curry? How did that all come about? Sure thing. Well, I, I grew up in New Mexico and Texas. Um, and, and was born in, in Northern California. I've lived all over the place, but, but really the mountains above Santa Fe, New Mexico is where I kind of call home in terms of my heart. And then I spent uh, middle school and high school, although they called it junior high back then, junior high and, and high school in Austin, Texas. And uh, then I've, I've been a priest almost 20 years now and have served Bishop Curry for 10 years, nine of those in the Diocese of North Carolina as uh, one of his canons to the ordinary. And then for the past year, almost year and a half, as canon to the presiding bishop. Okay. Mm. Cool, cool, cool. So, um, so here, here, here's, you know, you know, I tell you, we always go, y'all know us on racial heresy. We always go avant-garde. So, so let's, let's go avant-garde, man. Um, so here it is. 
um, you know, young, middle, young to middle, white male, age white male, working for a black man. Tell me, man. Uh, and, 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 and in this dynamic where that's not, that's, that's not common, um, especially in these, in, with that sort of power. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you may have a black boss somewhere, um, but you really know that still, as the white man, you still what you're still the one that's in control of the situation, you know. But in 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 that sort of dynamic, it's undeniable, you know, who is the the power player in that situation. Tell me, how does that how does that come about for you? Um, how does that how have you resonated with that? Um, how has that shaped your reflections on race, on on reconciliation, on the work that you do? Do you and Joe Biden talk? <laughs> I've never met Joe Biden. I've never. Oh. Met- I, I was serving in the diocese of North Carolina as the chaplain of Davidson College, uh, and and really pretty much out of the blue got a call from Bishop Curry uh, asking me to be his canon to the ordinary. And and he said that he had been kind of watching my work and, and he wanted me to come aboard his team. And, and he invited me to drive to Greensboro and meet him. And I was literally driving to Greensboro thinking that when I got there, he was going to go, why are you here? <laughs> thinking that he got me confused with someone else. Cause I didn't know, I didn't know that he, you know, he didn't know me. I didn't think. Um, but, but then um, he, he, he made the offer, and, and so I, I came aboard. Um, and he and I have, uh, have obviously, for, if we've been together 10 years, we, we resonate on a lot of things, uh, both in terms of some common background that we have. Um, but in terms of the power dynamic, there was never any doubt. I was, I was a 36-year-old person. My first question when he offered me the job was, do you think I'm too young for this? <laughs> and he said, look, I've been telling people I'm serious about young people in leadership, and they're going to believe me now. So, so I started as, you know, he's, he's been a mentor to me. He's been uh, a, a friend to me. He has, he has taught me all kinds of things. So, so in terms of power dynamic, there was never any doubt from the very beginning <laughs> right. what was going on on that score. Right, right. So, so then how has that, I imagine it, it must shaped or impacted um your understanding of racial reconciliation well i think you know i think we got to start maybe further back in terms of my early history uh, when i was uh just turning 13 years old we had moved from los alamos new mexico uh where my mother was the archivist of a historical museum uh, that okay. studied native american rock art and so i i grew up chasing her around the county uh, the canyons of New Mexico and wishing that I was Hopi was, was the way I kind of grew up. And then, then we moved to Austin, Texas, and, and I immediately enrolled in a junior high school that was complying with the Brown versus Topeka Board of Education. Okay. Um, this, this was 1983. They were complying with the Brown versus Topeka. in the school. So I, at, at 13, new kid, um, doing that adolescent male, uh, pudgy, zit-faced thing, 
was thrown into a school system where I was not only the new kid, but I was also uh, very much the racial minority in my middle school, okay. um, which was about 30% white, predominantly African-American and Latino. And it was a total culture shock for me um, and, a, and a baptism by fire in many sort of ways. Uh, my my history teacher. I mean, I, this was this was. I was so terrified that I didn't go to my locker because I I thought I'd get beat up. <laughs> so I carried all of the books for all of my classes on my back all the time be, because I didn't want to be late to class because then the teachers wouldn't like me. And you know, you gotta <laughs> you gotta get the teachers to like you because no one else is liking you. So so Mr. Robinson, who was my history teacher, kind of took me under his wing, and um, I don't know how he let me on the basketball team, but he did. He was a seventh grade basketball coach, and I I had a specific role to play which we talk about later if you care <laughs> but uh but, but mr robinson kind of took me under his wing and uh and really in many ways kind of raised me up and and so then then i spent i spent six of those formative adolescent years as very much the racial minority in my uh social environment okay um and 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 so so i i sort of come from that background Okay. And uh, by the time I was a junior in high school, there was a vote in the in the city of Austin to return to neighborhood schools. You've heard that mm-hmm. story before. And so in my junior year, we had a chance to decide whether we would stay at the integrated school or whether we would go back to our neighborhood schools. And so my senior class dropped about in half. Oh, wow. And those of us who stayed in the integrated Ooh. environment really went through some some serious um changes. And, and so I, I was, uh, I was involved in, um, racial reconciliation. We call it anti-racism work, cultural work, diversity work from the time I was 14 years old, oh, wow. uh, both, both sort of deliberately and also formally in the sense that the school in terms of trying to work on racial integration brought in consultants and, and sent some of us to a, a camp called any town USA, which I went to, um, when I was 13, 14 years old. So, so although I may, um, I may, you know, you look at me and I'm a white man and I know I'm a white man and I understand a lot about what it means to be a white man. But there are parts of my cultural heritage that are not immediately um, uh, available, such as the fact that I do know the electric slide very easily and I can, <laughs> and I can break dance. So there are surprising pieces of, of sort of my background. All right. Hey, this, just, this just became a video podcast. We'd like, nah, <laughs> no, no, it did not. So, so that's wow. I mean, that's thank you, and and that's intense to to hear that kind of depth and and the the resonance. I think with a lot of stories, some of my own uh, and and other people we've had on the show, you know, to have those moments of you know imposter syndrome, of of you know talking about driving to to meet Bishop Curry and and those moments where that experience of being uh, in the minority in a particular. So, you know, in the social situation, um, what w- those are powerful things. Yet, yet you got to the part where, right, you said in senior year, my senior class dropped in half. Right, so half the people you grew up with didn't didn't get it. Right, didn't get that same wash. Didn't uh, didn't decide to interpret it the same way you did. You know, had took it some different way. What what was it? I mean, is there is there uh, a part of your faith, a, a part of uh, something. I mean, what was it that made you open to uh, letting that affect you and being affected? You know, I, I, gosh, I've never, I've never thought about it, it in, in just that way. I, I think my initial response would be to say that I was 
in some ways forced to make friends across the high school and across the middle school because I didn't know anybody. And, and so mm. there, were, there were definitely times um, in middle school and then in high school. Like I spent half of the year as a baseball team. And um, this was in high school. And, and so I always had this kind of dual identity within the school. And, and the theater kids were like, how can you hang out with those jocks? And the jocks were like, why are you hanging out with those theater nerds? And, and, and so I had, I had friends sort of, sort of like that. And then, um, and then I had friends who were gang banging. There, was a, there, was a, there, was a, there were three gangs that were active in the middle of our high school. And so there was some of that going on. And some of it was just, I had to survive. And, and I survived by not fighting my way out of stuff, but by getting to know people. And so mm -hmm. it, it, it was by the time I was a, a sophomore in, in high school, I had friends literally all over the school. It didn't matter what hallway I walked down, there was somebody I knew. It didn't matter what neighborhood in Austin I was driving through, there was somebody I knew, and I felt comfortable all over the city because of the diversity of my, of my upbringing. Mm -hmm. And, and so, um, looking back on it, uh, you know, there were, there were things like, um, there were all kinds of subtle cues that I think I, I learned how to pick up just by trying to survive high school, which is, which is not an easy thing to do, right. but I, I don't think it had anything to do with me. I think it was just desperation to try to, to try to yeah. not get ostracized or beat up or, or, or cut from the baseball team or, or worse. Mm -hmm. So it was just, it developed a, a lot of friendships. So then yeah, that's wow. So then I appreciate that, that, that perspective, you know, and, and, and yeah, it's like, what do you say? Necessity is the mother of invention. And, and, and so, you know, it's like the question that comes up in my mind in light of that response is necessity kind of forged a, a, a way for you to make linkages, form relationships across a variety of spectrum such that, when an opportunity came, presented itself for separation, you de you decided to remain because you had relationship, you had deep relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there is that yeah. sector that I don't have to remain because I don't have those relationships. So now for those of our brothers and sisters who in whatever dynamic didn't have to remain, they were able to separate and, and that separated what do you think is the compelling reason why they need to, why that separation is not good? Um, what do you see as the compelling reason that invites them into that reconciliation? And I know we can say the gospel. I know it's a long-winded question, right? But I know we can say the gospel. I know we can say the faith. But we've been reading the gospel. We've been doing church at answers of the gospel, the scriptures, you know, it doesn't really, doesn't really cut it really. Well, I, I think, I think it, um, for speaking as a white person, I think that there's a choice. I, I think that white people have the choice. And in my experience, people of color are naturally multicultural because they have to be. And, and so people of color can operate fine in the white world. They know how to do that. And, um, but white people don't have to learn how to function in other cultures. And, and so it, it has to become a choice, I, I think, in, in some ways, uh, to appreciate that sort of diversity. And, and for me, I, mean, I talked a little bit about my parents, but, but my parents went in, uh, I believe it was 1965, they moved to Talladega, Alabama, thick of all the freedom riot and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I grew up hearing stories from both of my parents about the need to heal society's wounds, number one, and number two, 
um, our household was one that had appreciation of a variety of cultures just in it. Like, like I mentioned, my mother was, was studying Native American peoples, and I grew up just fundamentally trying to appreciate that. That was just mm-hmm. a part of the way our family rolled. So, so I don't think it was a noble thing that I kind of stayed while other people left when it was in high school. It was that by the time I got to high school, I had, um, I had developed a sense of appreciation so that, um, so that I, I didn't have a sense of this is not my culture, this is my culture. It was just, you know, w- the next song at the high school dance happens to be um, Public Enemy. And so this is how we move when we play this. Uh, and, and so, so I, think, I think that there is daily the opportunity to either engage in mm-hmm. diversity or to withdraw to whiteness, if you want to say that, or mm-hmm. to the suburbs, if that makes sense. And and I think in my life, the harder it is for me to do that. My taste in film, my taste in music, my taste in, in what I read, um, both in terms of where my news comes from and in terms of the, the culture that I engage with, um, cultural commentary is is not coming from um, from people who are one color. And then it sinks even deeper into becoming mm-hmm. part of your identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, choice. Um, it, it that's a, a powerful observation, and and one that is um, is rampant in our society in in a lot of negative ways. And so, to hear that, you know, recognizing I have a choice, just is a big deal, right? And stepping into that choice, I'm I'm curious, um, you know, in your in your role now. Um, there, there are times and places when you don't have that choice, right? When, when you must be witness to, um, you must engage in uh, both invitations to positive, you know, experiences of reconciliation, and you must now be witness to, um, uh, you know, the presiding bishop is a pretty big target, and, and attacks that come his way and that are launched at him and launched at the church, and in your role there as canon. Um, you know, it's not, it's not the, okay, well, I can flip the channel now. Imagine, you know, this comes in to the office or this comes in to the presiding bishop or this comes in at the church and, and you don't get to choose anymore, right? You're, you're there having to engage how, um, you know, how, how does that change you to go from a place of choice to a place of, no, I'm, I'm here and I have to deal with this. Hmm. Um, you know, it, I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> You're good at answering the stumping questions. The, the, um, because, because to me, it, it has just been so normal, I think. Um, and, and maybe that's just because just it's been 10 years. But, but my conversations really on an almost daily basis with Bishop Curry kind of are seamlessly always blending together ethics and theology and ecclesiology and politics. I mean, it's, it's just none of those things, none of those are separate buckets. We're mm-hmm. always talking about and analyzing and thinking through, um, how, you know, and, and, and he will he will frame questions like how how do we help the church with it? How you know what does the church need to hear and where is the gospel in this? And mm-hmm. and so that's and, and so that's fundamentally the the perspective that I think we come from the gospel. You know, we're we're working a lot these days on the Jesus movement. You know that we are about trying to build loving, liberating, and life giving relationships and the Trinitarian 
stuff right there is very clear, right? right yeah. The loving, you know, the God who loves us so much that he created the universe, the liberator, the word incarnate made flesh came among us to, to liberate us from our sins. And from, and that means all this, all the sin that divides, mm-hmm. that divides us, mm-hmm. the, all of the racism and sexism and homophobia and all that kind of stuff. We are, we are all entrapped by that. Mm-hmm. White or black, male or female, it, it hurts and damages us all in a way that sin always affects everybody. Right. And and so the the natural part of that is I think the closer you get to God in, in terms of developing a loving and liberating and life-giving relationship with God through confession of sin and all of that other sort of stuff, it, it gets really hard to just bunker down in your own with your own people in your own class who drive the same car you drive and live in the same neighborhood without caring who's next door. And mm-hmm. and so I think that that the the love of neighbor is a natural outgrowth of the love of God, but I think there are also people who come at it the other way. There are people who say, you know, I I'm, I care about the ethics of what's going on in my neighborhood, and I want to get involved in that, and that brings them into a deeper relationship with God as well. So 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 the, it's hard for me now to separate any of that stuff out because it's all it, it it's all kind of becoming more and more of an integrated whole in terms of how how we think about it. So there are always uh, power dynamics. There are always um, theological dynamics. There are always racial dynamics and gender dynamics that are just part of part of the what we're working with every day. Yeah, and I like I love when you say that, um, and I love that you unpacked that 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 trinitarian um, doxology of sort of sorts. You know, um, in that mission statement of being loving, liberating, life giving um, relationship that. Um, Y'all out there listen to us, and y'all know I'm we're kind of wild, and I'm kind of wild. I own it myself, kind of wild, but I am very orthodox, you know. Um, and so, in terms of how do we as a church buy into that more than just, um, you know, whatever, but on a deep, spiritual, soulful, guttural type level, how do you embody that stuff? It's like. Yeah, like you said, when 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 you're dealing with 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 loving, liberating, and life giving relationship, um, and I think critical with, like with ourselves and God, you know what I mean? Like when 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 we That's start right. there, you know, like you said, I can't not I can't not care um, that so and so is offended by the Confederate flag that's hanging in the church. Um, I can't not care that. You know, um, there's a black church across the street because our white church didn't want them to be here. Um, these things matter. You know, I can't not care about, you know, what immigration policies may be doing to refugee families. I may disagree with how we get to love them and liberate them and breathe life into them. Um, but when I focus on that piece, I can't deny that they need to be loved, they need to be liberated, and they need life breathed into them just like we all need, you know? That's right. That's right. And so much of, I think, of our disagreements and, and actual hostilities that we're experiencing in our culture today, I think, are really disagreements about strategy um, in, in terms of how do we care for one yeah. another. And, but I think if we if we just sort of bash each over the head about, no, you can't do it that way or you have to do it this way or else you're a bad person. Then, then you know, we're we're not asking, we're not digging under there and saying, what's the loving, liberating, and life-giving thing I can do in this moment? 
And, and if, if we come from that place, if that becomes our sort of test, wake up in the morning, what's the loving, liberating, and life-giving thing I can do to address whatever the situation is, then, then that, that's, I think, what we mean when we're saying that's becoming part of the Jesus movement. And, and there will be different strategies. Yeah. That, that, that we and need we need to, different strategies. Thanks be to God for different strategies because who am I to think that my strategy is right and your strategy is wrong? I, I could care less. You know, that's like, you know, who is Paul? Who is Apollos, you know? So it may be, um, you know, moving money from here to there or adding more money here or spending less there. I don't know. But it, it needs to be loving, liberating, life-giving. Um, you know, and, and that's Anglicanism too, right? I mean, we, we have always tried to adapt our common prayer to the language of the people in, in terms of communicating the gospel in a way that people can understand. And, and part of the way I interpret that is to say this particular strategies for bringing the loving, liberating, and life-giving relationship that God has with all of humanity into a particular culture may not scan direct, you know, it's not just a one-shot deal where we'll do the same thing everywhere and it'll work. It, we've we've got we've to speak in the language of the people, and that involves um, strategy as well. But, but another piece that people need to engage, or let me just speak personally, part of what I have had to learn and, and engage is that I need to not try to control the outcome of whatever conversation that I'm having. And, and, and that means to be undefended. Um, and, and I think part of what I learned deep down in my middle school and high school years was that I was not in control of that conversation or that context. And, and so there was no illusion that, oh, the white kid is in power. No, the white kid is about to get his butt whipped. <laughs> the white kid better learn how to dance or else he's going to, I mean, like, it was just, you had to, you had to survive. So, so I think there's a sense of internalizing, and I think that's what the confession of sin is, is about. We, we can, if we are regularly confessing our sins, then, then I can be open to sharing both power and conversation. And, and, and so then, then my engagement with other people becomes a relationship that can be loving, liberating, and life-giving rather than a right. power dynamic where I am, I am the beneficiary. You know, I'm giving somebody something right. so that I can feel better about myself. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. So, so how would you respond to this danger then? A danger that I see. Maybe it not be a danger because I could just be seen, you know, I could have deer in headlights seeing danger where there is none. But how do you mitigate the danger then of tell you what is loving, liberating, life-giving. You can't tell me what is loving, liberating, and life-giving. And so I can say that I embrace the fullness of what you say and still never reconcile because somehow I have formed in my mind that what is loving, liberating, and life-giving still entails an arm's-length relationship. Yeah, and, 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 that, and that's where I think it's got to be about relationship because ultimately I'm not in control of my relationship with you if it's an honest relationship. If I really get involved in a deep relationship where the other person's concerns are my concerns and my concerns are their concerns, then things really start to change. And, and so I think what we're looking for, what I'm looking for, is a, is a deeper kind of relationship that, quite frankly, I think is embodied in, in what you all are doing here in Racial Heresy. It doesn't just stay at the level of let's make sure we're all using the right language about it and pretending that it's not really a problem because we've all figured out how to talk about it. But, but rather let's let's dig in under under the the realities and right. so as as a as a white person engaged in diversity work i i'm regularly 
on that line of, of trying to not appear to be the good white person, you know, Oh, I mean, and even just in terms of today, my self description could sound like, well, see, I'm a, I'm one of the good white. I have no work to do. Right. But, 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 but the bottom line is, you know, I, I live in a, I live in a neighborhood. I got, I got to tell you this story. I know that you've heard about Mike Brown and about the shootings that have happened all over the country, but, but I, I wonder right. if you know the story of Akil Dinkins who last June was shot while fleeing arrest in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hmm. And, and the, that shooting took place on my street, 13 blocks from my front porch. Oh, wow. And, and I live on the North end of East street in Raleigh, North Carolina, the South end of East street in Raleigh, North Carolina is a whole different world. Hmm. And the day after Mr. Dinkins was shot, he was in his early twenties. The day after he was shot, my son and I drove 13 blocks down our street to pay our respects at the place where he fell hmm. and the place where he died. There was a gathering of people there. There were mylar balloons and flowers that everybody was bringing. Um, and when these two white guys showed up in our little orange Honda Fit, <laughs> we, were, we were very much out of place. Right. And people wondered why we were there and people wondered what we were up to. And as and, and we were literally shaking hands with people who are our neighbors that we have had never met because mm -hmm. it's easy not to drive all the way down that street. It's right. easy to just stay up on my end of the street where people drive the same kind of cars. And, mm -hmm. and there's one person of color who lives across the street from us. Um, and he is fabulous. But, <laughs> you know, you go down to the other end of the street. It is a whole different economic reality. Right. So as as a white person in Raleigh, North Carolina, what, the conversation we were having in our house and that I was having with my teenage son was about the reality of the difference between my kids and Mr. Dinkins went to all the same schools. So when we're talking about reconciliation, this is not about just playing nice and, and being able to go see Barbershop 3 and get the joke. <laughs> this, this, this is about coming to a place where... I, where I am literally um, engaged in in relationships with people and, and and our culture becomes one that appreciates diversity right. rather than just appropriating somebody else's culture for my own needs. Right. You know, it becomes a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my son, my son, my oldest son is a jazz musician. And um, and there's a lot of conversation that we have around Raleigh. Um, why is it appropriate for white people to play jazz and mm -hmm. can they? You know, and I think that's that cultural appropriation kind mm -hmm. of conversation. I think that there is pain in all of humanity and and that both the, the beauty of the improvisation that comes out of that jazz tradition and the pain that gave birth to it is a pain that we all share. Mm -hmm. I, I think that um, I think that, that white people can take responsibility for things in ways that are unhelpful. Um, or decline the conversation, but I think we're all human beings, and, mm -hmm. and we got to build those those deep relationships. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that was a very long winded answer. No, that was a very that was a that was a very good answer. Um, you know, leads me um, to some, you know, I, I, you know, we could stay here all day, but I know we can't because you, you know you you all got a, you all got a life. Um, <laughs> As do you. Sir. You As you all have you. parish respond. You know you all you all have big responsibilities, and so <laughs> you know, um, kind of, kind of, you know, kind of getting you out on 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 this. 
um, how would you cast the invitation to we we have that dynamic you know we like to think that we're all you know enlightened and 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 we get outside the bubble and realize that we're all over the place um and so there is a choir that listens to us and we love you choir choir got to rehearse so make make sure you show up for rehearsal all the time we love you you know uh, but there is a choir but even those of us in the choir should have that that question because how do you get more voices in the choir you know the choir you know you know the choir for liturgical purposes is only there not to entertain the congregation but to invite the congregation into into the music of, of liturgy um so how would you cast a vision of what we've been talking about to those who probably are not listening to racial heresy or or at least are listening with skepticism I think we're on the threshold of a tremendous opportunity because of the because of the we cannot ignore the reality that our country is pretty divided these days. And and that means the conversation is on the front page and it's on the front page every day. And there are lots of opportunities for us to get to know neighbors who think differently politically. And in some ways, we're, we're being forced to talk to each other. I think the challenge before us is to figure out nonviolent ways of doing that. And, and what I'm concerned about is that our culture is really interested in a word and a label on it, and let's decide how, how racist was that comment. Let's, let's debate that for an hour and a half. And then we get, we get really, the anger gets going. And, and what I think really needs to happen is, um, is we're dealing with what I call cultural racism, which is to say, and, and this is some learning that I'm, I'm doing uh, around how um, when you're trying to change a culture in a business or, or something like that, they, they distinguish between culture and climate. Mm-hmm. Climate is the stuff that's the posters on the walls that say um, everybody's treated equally here. We encourage minorities in the, in right. the workplace. That that's that's the climate stuff. It's policy statements. It's right. resolutions of general convention. It's the baptismal covenant. Right. Um, it's um, all men are created equal. Right. <laughs> uh, it, th- these these are climate things that see Sepueda. We can put it on the we can put a poster up on the wall. Right. But if it doesn't feel like that, then then we haven't changed the culture. culture and so right. I think what we're on the threshold right now is is a growing need for cultural change in our country. And and part of what that means is if 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 I look at a, an African-American man in a hoodie and what I feel is fear before I've even engaged my thought, that's the level of culture that mm-hmm. we're trying to change. And we're trying to engage 600 years of violent, brutal history that has that has broken all of us. And so I think the opportunity for healing and for racial reconciliation is to engage in a cultural change that will actually invite us to have more friends and more community than we currently have and will actually reduce the fear that that many are experiencing in the country today. So I think there are some people that are engaging with the fear that, that we're all experiencing and saying, well, we're going to we're going to feel more comfortable if we keep these people out and keep our people in and then we'll feel better. And I think there is another way which which I think we hear in the gospel, which is which is God saying, hey, look each other in the eye and see God's image there rather than an enemy 
or a racist. To me, that's the theological challenge. It's also the ethical challenge and, and the cultural challenge. So, so to me, it's mm-hmm. all, it is all tied together. My personal, what do I see when I look at, at somebody, right. is, is my internal personal work. Right. That's me trying to see with God's eyes. Right. And and my relational work is listening to your experience, Jabril, and your experience case and and, and taking your judgment on my behavior seriously Mm -hmm. so that I'm open to changing who I am and how I operate in the interests of my own growth and our own growth as neighbors. So I, so I think engaging racism at that deep cultural level is something that we're going to have to do one way or the other. <laughs> and, 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 and I think it's a great, I think it's a great opportunity that the church can take. I mean, the church is not, church has had a difficult history with all these things. Yeah. Many of our churches were built by enslaved people so that to this day in our churches, people who vigorously disagree on all things political come together every Sunday morning and exchange the peace and receive from the same cup. And, and, and there is hope in the Episcopal Church that what binds us together is our common prayer and, and the fact that we are all saved by Jesus Christ, that that actually is deeper than all the other disagreements about strategies and political differences. And, and if the church can step into that space mm-hmm. and really nurture those deep roots, that can start making some cultural change. And thankfully, we have a fabulous leader who's a natural reconciler, and, and he's going to be calling us to that because he doesn't, he doesn't take the easy answers. He's always looking at how do we love the whole church because uh, that's, that's just how he rolls. He, is, he, he was called to North Carolina when, when the, the progressives didn't understand why the evangelicals were voting for him and the evangelicals <laughs> didn't understand why the progressives were. They, the, the way he tells the story, they were sort of looking at each other across the aisle going like, why are you voting for this guy? Because he's, he's speaking Jesus right out of the Bible. Right. right. And then he has this other progressive. So he naturally is able to bring together in himself people who would disagree otherwise. And, and I think that's the leadership we need. Oh, man. You know, you, you, you blew my clothes with that wonderful mm. answer because... Because when, when you talk about that, you brought up this question that I've had that Case and I have kind of discussed. We did an episode on it. Um, we have a black presiding bishop. The church is done with racism. Um, and, I heard that one. And, 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 we, and we see, we, we really see now in this social climate, the white backlash of having eight years of a black president. Have you ever considered the potentiality for a white backlash in the Episcopal Church um, after having nine years of a black presiding bishop. And what would be, I mean, we always talk about, Case and I talk about often, you know, what is what is sounding the alarm? What is preparatory? What is forward-looking? And what is hyperbole? You know what I mean? How do you straddle the line between there? Because people could say, oh, you're seeing stuff where there is nothing. And that's always, that's what people said when when folks said that about Obama, that, oh, you know, it's going to be a white backlash. Oh, you're seeing something where there is nothing. And now what are we seeing, right? Um, so have you ever, have you ever thought about that? If not, how does that resonate? What does the church do to ensure that that's never even a possibility? I, I think that's where the the church and particularly people who are listeners to your podcast, I think white or or people of color have a role to play in terms of helping this cultural change be real and not just kind of on the surface. And, and when I look back over the many years that I've engaged in 
um, racial reconciliation work or anti-racism training, you know, that we used to call it, um, and felt myself as a white person go into um, anti-racism training, bite my tongue and endure it for the four hours of the session, walk out and go, phew, that's over. I got my box ticked and I'm done. Um, and, I, and I've also seen in myself the temptation to go into anti-racism training and go, I'm a good white person. I agree with everything that the speaker just said because I would never agree disagree with a black person who's leading anti-racism training because that would mean I'm a racist. You know, so so I, think, I think there is a real role for, for white people and and for uh, to engage in sexism in in racism white people have a leadership role to step in and say we're not going to control the conversation or rec or, or rescue it but we're going to show up to it and we're going to listen i think that men have a have a real responsibility to engage in the conversation about sexism um so that locker room talk does not become kind of okay and normative again mm -hmm. not to protect women they don't need our protection but they need our support and they need us to listen Right. And, and, and so I think I think there is there, I, I really like it when um, groups like visions and what Valerie Batts is talking about, about the the way in which you can in the same day step from a place where you are in the minority and you want, and, and you do not control the conversation into a place where you are in the majority and you do control the conversation, you know, because mm -hmm. that that's been my experience my whole life. I would I would get on the school bus and ride across town step off the school bus and man i was the target i did not decide what was funny i did not decide who was in charge i was not you know i was i was just trying to survive i would get right. on the bus ride back across town step off the bus and now i'm a white suburban privileged person right, right? and now i have all this control over what's funny and i and all that sort of stuff so i i think that people of color are used to stepping back and forth from those roles. Uh -huh. I think if you look at the Anglican communion, we are blessed with a tremendous diversity and it's not terrifying, but, um, but, but we've got mm -hmm. to experience it more. So I think there's a real call for the people who are listening to your podcast and, and are your followers to, to help make sure that this doesn't become, you know, just a surface level thing. Mm -hmm. We tick the box. But rather, I think we've got to find ways to engage the conversation with people who don't think racism has anything to do with them and it's not a part of the conversation they want to be involved in. Right. And, and instead find ways to invite those those folks to the table. Um, I, I think there might be some help there. Right. You heard it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Canon Michael Hahn told you to become a racial heretic. <laughs> yeah, that's what I heard. That's, that's exactly what I heard. <laughs> no, I, you know that that idea of of um of stepping into places where you do have power stepping into places where you can't control the situation stepping into those places and and talking against uh the the norms talking against the the culture that says locker room talk is okay talk you know speaking up and showing up in ways and in places we don't do something about it if we don't acknowledge that if we don't step into that place and become and you had a, a great sort of description of, of what I think is a racial heretic. I mean, somebody who is willing both to let go of control and be vulnerable and open and, and accept the realities where they are and to do that same thing in a way that helps them show up and, and be present. Um, so that's motivating to me. I'm glad we're not the only ones here calling for that kind of uh, that kind of stance, that kind of action, that kind of, of life of, of love and liberty and, and life giving. Right. I mean. All right, I'm pumped. So you know, right, right, right. So, so y'all, y'all hear it here. Y'all, y'all, y'all see the. You all get to bear witness to um, 
I guess, the establishment and the anti-establishment, even though I'm anti-establishment and also part of the establishment. But you get to see the, that there is hope in, in, in the connectivity of the whole. Um, mm. There is reason for us to be um, invested in the work of the whole. Um, that there is... Um, that there is joy, that there is that there is grace, that there is favor there. Um, you know, to to know that we can indeed um, join hands, look the same direction, um, take up swords and shields, and fight the evil one together um, for the glory of God. And so, you know, brother, I appreciate you coming on and and spending this time with us um, and. And inviting our listeners into that relationship um, that you, that that you've had um, with life, with with reconciliation, with with the presiding bishop, with the church. So thank you, thank you, yes, thank you, thank you very much. Um, you all hear uh, Canon Michael Hun when he comes to your diocese. There's no need to be afraid. Uh, open a door, uh, share a meal, uh, invite him in. Uh, to know him is to love him. Ask him to break dance for you. <laughs> right, right, make sure you ask him to break dance because we need to see. I didn't say we, I was good at it. I never said I was good at we it. We didn't care that you were good at it. We just <laughs> cared that you did it. And so we want to see you all catch. Uh, make sure if he comes to a black church, make sure y'all throw on the electric slide, um, some Grandmaster Flash or something, and make sure that he has to break dance and post it on on video hashtag racial heresy. <laughs> but, I should uh, never have said that. I should never have said that. <laughs> oh, that was we'll spirit led, brother. We'll cut that out in post production. It's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. We won't tell nobody else. We will. We'll just keep it between. Yeah, I don't. I don't believe you. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, until next time, I'm Father Jabril. I'm Father Case. Imploring you to risk it all and exercise whatever power, whatever privilege you have to become a racial heretic. And now here it is, your moment of sin. There were other immigrants who came here in the bottom of slave ships, worked even longer, even harder for less. But they too had a dream that one day their sons, daughters, grandsons, granddaughters, great-grandsons, great-granddaughters might pursue prosperity and happiness in this land. Life in America was not always easy. It wasn't always easy for new immigrants. Certainly it wasn't easy for those of African heritage who had not come here voluntarily and yet in their own way were immigrants themselves. There was discrimination and hardship and poverty. But like you, they no doubt found inspiration in all those who had come before them. And they were able to muster faith that here in America, they might build a better life. Thank you for listening to Racial Heresy. Be sure to visit our website, racialheresy.com, to post your questions, comments, and feedback, and to share your own stories of life as a racial heretic. Want to hear more? You can find past episodes of Racial Heresy on iTunes and the Racial Heresy website. Want to hear even more? 
Invite Racial Heresy to speak at your conference, council, church, training, or event. Email us at ebonyandivory at racialheresy.com or visit our website for information on speaking engagements.